invite you to turn in the Holy Scriptures to Matthew chapter 16, chosen a text here about discipleship for the occasion here of a public profession of faith. I'd like to read Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13, to the end of the chapter, and to give our attention particularly to verses 24 through 27 this morning. Matthew 16, at verse 13, the word of the Lord. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Let's bow and ask our God to speak it to us, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your providence you've appointed one more opportunity for us to gather around the Holy Scriptures and to pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would speak his word to our own souls. 
We pray, Lord, that this word would have power in our lives, and that the obstacle of our sin or the workings of the devil would not be able to oppose it, and that you would accomplish your good purpose, that your word would not return to you empty, but in fulfillment of what you sent it to do. So, God, glorify yourself in us, we pray, by letting your word be preached rightly and truthfully and helpfully, and giving to us an understanding of it and a willingness to receive it, and the faith to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christ Jesus, as we read these words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 16, we can ask the question, is a costless Christianity genuine Christianity? Many in our nation, as you know, identify as Christians, but feel free to disregard the law of God. Many in this land in which we live identify as Christians, but with an easy believism in which Christianity, if it's anything, is a compartment one hour of their week, in which there's no compelling need to be obedient to the word, to bow before the Lord, or to suffer for his sake. There's this thought that one can have Christ and have the world. You can have the best of both worlds. Being a Christian costs almost nothing, demands almost nothing, expects almost nothing. But is it real Christianity? Or is it, in fact, a man-invented religion? True Christianity, Jesus says, is costly. The question asked in our profession of faith form is not an added extra, but it's essential, isn't it? When it's asked, do you declare that you love the Lord, it's your heartfelt intention to serve the Lord according to his word, to forsake the world, to put to death your old nature, to lead a godly life. That belongs essentially, doesn't it, to what it means to be a Christian. It's not optional. And so Jesus Christ, in these words, is reminding his disciples and now reminding us that the path of Christian discipleship is to walk with Jesus along this road of denial and suffering. Let's look this morning as Christ calls us to take up our cross and follow him at, first of all, the cost, and then secondly, the calculation we have to make, and then thirdly, at the crown that awaits us. The cost, the calculation, and the crown. The cost is put clear in verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus plainly declares that being a Christian will cost you everything. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. Now, the context here is quite important, isn't it? Because we read in verse 21 that from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he has to suffer, be killed. From what time on? Well, from the time at which his disciples rightly identified him as the Christ. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, you come to a turning point here, where now at last Christ asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And in the mouth of Peter, they identify him as the Messiah, the Christ sent from heaven. And Jesus says to Peter, that's not your imagination, Peter. You didn't come up with that one, but that was revealed to you by my Father, and that's why you understand it that I am the Christ sent from heaven, I am the Savior of the world. And from the time that they know his identity, 
Now he begins to tell them what that identity entails. From the time that they know he's the Christ, now he reveals to them his calling and his mission. And it's surprising. It's not we're marching to Jerusalem and I'm going to take the throne. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be nailed to a cross. I'm going to die. Peter says, no way. No way. And we, we can sympathize with Peter. We probably do the same thing. On the one hand, it's, it's probably love for Jesus, right, that would compel Peter to say this. No, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You inaugurate the kingdom on your terms, not your enemy's terms. This shall never happen to you. But on the other hand, is it all about love for Jesus when Peter speaks this way? Or is it also love for Peter? Because you see, when Jesus, the Messiah, says, I'm going to suffer, surely Peter understands that has a bearing upon Peter's life. If the king is going to suffer, what of his subjects? No, this won't happen. Jesus rebukes Peter, and then he says plainly, if anyone desires to come after me, this Messiah who is going to suffer and die, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see? The Savior who shares his mission with us then calls us to follow him, teaching us that that the servant is not greater than the master. Christ's death, of course, is unique. He is the only one who dies without sin for the sin of someone else, right? His, his death is unique. His blood alone can reconcile us to God. And though his death is unique, there is a way in which our lives need to enter into his dying. We need to join with him. And his path must be ours, that path of self-denial. Now, for us to deny ourselves is to renounce our old self, right? It's, it's to, to give up the old self that relied upon self, trusted in self, exalted in self. It's to renounce that old life, to turn from our sin with heartfelt sorrow, that we've grieved God and offended God. It's to turn from our old theology. Peter's theology says, no, I, I just want the way of happiness and glory, no suffering for me. We have our own ideas, don't we, often about what God should do, what Jesus ought to be doing in my life. To deny ourselves is to rely no more on what I am or what I will do, but to rely entirely on what Jesus Christ has done for me, not my own supposed goodness. To, to deny ourselves is to give up our supposed rights, my right to use my time as I want to, my right to use my money as I want to, my right to do as I want to with nobody telling me what to do. Jesus says, give it up if you want to follow me. We're called to give up ourselves, to surrender and yield to Jesus, to turn from what we used to be, proud and conceited and self-righteous and self-reliant. And yet we're called to come to Christ himself. Jesus is inviting us to follow him, to be with him, a person. Not just a norm, not just an ethic, not just a standard, but to be with the master. And this calls for a a momentous radical choice, and it calls for daily implementation. 
One commentator looking at the tenses of the the Greek verbs that are used here paraphrases it like this. If anyone wishes to be counted as an adherent, adherent of mine, he must once and for all say farewell to self, decisively accept pain, shame, and persecution for my sake, and then must follow and keep on following me as my disciple. Last verb is present tense. Keep on following. So there's the once for all decision, right? There's this radical break. And for those raised in a covenant home, there's perhaps not a singular day that we look upon as the day we made that break. It may be a, uh, an increasing knowledge of what's required, an increasing surrender to Jesus Christ. But there must be the break that we've renounced our old self. One theologian whose theology we would not want to embrace in total, nevertheless, famously wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He writes, The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's a great injustice to the glory of God, and it's a great deception to the souls of men that that Christ is sometimes presented as a Savior requires nothing of you. No radical break with sin and the pride and lust of this world. It's an injustice to Christ because it mocks his value and the worth of his precious blood, but it's a deception to man because it leads people to hell. You can belong to the church. You don't have to come to worship services. You can belong to the church. You don't have to give up your sin. You can belong to the church and still live like the world lives. You see? But it's a deception. Christ is to be preached in all of his glory, which demands that we yield our entire life to him, that we come to say, I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I've been bought. I've been redeemed. I'm his. My life is his, my mind is his, my words are his, my time is his, my money is his, my ambitions are his, my family is his, it's all his. And Jesus tells the disciples here he's going to build his church and for that purpose he gives them the keys of the kingdom. Authority on earth. And here we're reminded, aren't we, why church discipline matters. We see more and more churches giving up church discipline, but you, you know what that means then. Inevitably, the church ends up saying to people that it doesn't matter how you live, right? Because if the church is the one who receives confessions of faith and says to people, you are a member, your sins are forgiven. But then when people prove not to be walking with Jesus and to be walking in impenitence, and the church then says nothing in response to that, what are they saying? They're saying Christ is fine with you. Go on. Go ahead. You see the problem. The church needs to be clear for the sake of the world. If the church won't preach the call to discipleship, the demands of Christ, then who will? It's not loving. It's not loving to leave out Matthew 16 as we present Jesus Christ to the world and say, you know... He's just a loving Savior. He just loves you as you are. It's not loving. It leads people to destruction. 
The words of Jesus are plain, and the words are truth, and the words are truth spoken in love when he says, if anyone, anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, he must follow me. Taking up one's cross doesn't mean simply suffering some inconveniences, but it's, it's the idea of suffering for Jesus' sake. As, as they, they did in those days, as Jesus did often, the condemned one had to carry his cross. And Jesus is saying, you have to take up your cross. You have to be willing to endure the world's reproach and persecution for my sake. You have to be willing to identify with me, though it costs you. And we know, as we look around the world, that some suffer more in terms of persecution than others, but all must be willing. Whatever cross God gives them to bear it, to be hated by the world, to endure scorn and contempt of co-workers who maybe ridicule you, when you bow your head in the lunchroom, when you walk away from ungodly jokes, when you refuse to compromise ethics, to endure the tension in families when living for Jesus, upholding his truth, means difficulty. Just read about a Muslim man. This happens all the time, doesn't it? In, the, in Muslim lands, here a young man who, upon embracing Jesus Christ, his father was furious and gathered the whole family together to declare that he is no longer part of our family. And said to his son, you may never regard me as your father. We don't say it that starkly in our culture, do we? But we feel it. Feel that dividing line of the gospel that cuts through families and adds tension. Jesus says, "You, if you would follow me, you must take up your cross. You must be willing to suffer for my sake. You must walk in my footsteps. You must in love for me and gratitude for me obey my commands." You must suffer for me. This is, this is the way. And so that profession of faith question, do you love the Lord? Are you going to follow him? Will you forsake the whole world? Will you die to yourself? That's not an optional question. It's not that Jesus is saying you have to earn your salvation and you've got to You've got to try hard enough and you've got to suffer long enough that you at last can be worthy of me. We don't acquire Jesus by our self-denial and we don't earn Jesus through our suffering. The moment you believe you're saved and all your sins are forgiven, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, right? It's the glory of the gospel. The thief on the cross, he turns to Jesus and instantaneously, heaven is his. But this is demanded. It's not demanded as some higher plane Christianity. It's, it's not that Christ says, you know, if you want to be a carnal Christian, just have your sins forgiven, that's fine. You can have me and have the world too. But if you want to be a super Christian, then you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. That's not what he's doing. He's he's saying there's only one class of Christian. All my followers do this. They deny themselves and they take up their cross and they follow me. That's the only way to be my disciple. But for the disciple, it's joyful, isn't it? That's the other thing Jesus taught us. 
that, that the man who finds the treasure in the field, for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has. He gives up the whole, gives up the whole world to have the treasure. He doesn't enjoy. For the believer, it's, it's not a sorrowful choice, but a joyful choice. See an illustration of it in the Old Testament with Jonathan after David kills Goliath and so forth. And Jonathan loves David and makes a covenant with him. And Jonathan takes off his rope, gives it to David. Takes off his armor, gives it to David. Takes his sword, gives it to David. He, He divests himself and he gives to David, recognizing him as the Lord's anointed, the one whom he loves. And Jonathan is willing to endure the wrath of his father, King Saul, for the sake of his love of David. And we get a glimpse, don't we? of the coming King Jesus in David and the coming Christians in Jonathan. What will it cost you to follow Jesus? It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your sinful pleasure. It will cost you your agenda. You won't be able to say, I'll date whomever I please. I'll spend my money or hoard my money however I please. You have to give up your right to be angry, your right to be unforgiving, your right to be self-indulgent, your right to be lazy. And covenant children will have to do that too as they hear the promises and the obligations of the covenant. They will be called to this too. Christ is on the way to the cross to pay for our sins, but now he's revealing to his disciples that his death will only be of value to the one who renounces his life. Calling to follow Christ is not only a radical decision, but it's an ongoing way of life. Stumbling into sin and finding ourselves being self-indulgent and lazy doesn't mean we no longer have Christ, but it does mean that we need to repent. The path of following Jesus is a life of daily repentance, where he convicts us by his spirit and we bow down and say, I'm sorry, we turn from our sin and we relinquish again the things our hands have grasped onto. And say, Lord, I give it all to you. I yield to you. My life is yours. So let me ask you on this Lord's Day morning, have you you made the radical decision? And is it a daily way of life with you that you have denied yourself? You have been willing to bear the cross of suffering for Jesus. And you're following the Lord in his path, his commands. Have you been misled by an easy believism? And a false gospel. Or have you heard the summons? And said in sincerity, Lord, I'm not my own. My life is yours. I give up everything I am and everything the world has for your sake. That's what turning to Christ means. Be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, the one who's calling us here is calling us to himself. He loved us and gave himself for us. So we see the cost, but then Jesus leads us in making the calculation. He says in verses 25 and 26, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The voice of the martyrs tells a very realistic story in a recent publication about a a young lady named Idosa, a teenager whose polygamous father died, leaving three wives and 15 children. And when her mother remarried, then she gets booted out of the house. She was taken in by an uncle who would give her a place to live if she would be the full-time maid. And that went all right until she heard the gospel and believed on Jesus. Then her aunt beat her and kicked her out of the house. And so she lived on the street for months. And then a Muslim woman offered her a place in her home if she would be the maid. And that worked out. And she was allowed to go to church for a while until the church became too important to her in the eyes of the woman. And then she had to sneak out to go to church. And upon returning from church, she would be beaten. And meanwhile, the wages promised her over the course of seven years were not paid. And so, Edosa began to be discouraged. She said, when the ill treatment became worse, I was discouraged. I didn't want the Lord or anybody to talk to me. I was weakened by the sorrow and by the difficulties. Where is Jesus? I've chosen to follow him, but he hasn't come to save me. And so she began to question whether becoming a Christian was worth it. Was it worth the persecution to be a follower of Jesus? But the Lord supplied her a pastor's wife who became a mentor to her and read to her the word of God. And maybe she read her this passage because... What Jesus is doing here in love and tenderness is is coaching us, is helping us, is leading us to to make the right calculation. He's saying, look at this world. What if you were Bill Gates or Elon Musk? What if you had gained the whole world? But upon your death, you lost your eternal life. What would be the profit of owning everything in the universe, being able to buy anything you want to buy? What would be the the benefit of being the most famous person on earth, or having the highest reputation, or attaining to, to great ambitions below, if after this short sojourn upon the earth you stood before God and he condemned you to everlasting hell? See, what's Jesus doing here? Jesus is not like a cult leader who wants to brainwash his followers and disconnect them from reality so he can manipulate them. It's the very opposite. Jesus is saying to his fathers, to his followers, I want to, to sit you down before reality and have you make a sober judgment. Now, the fact that our society says, oh, you know, it's all mythological fantasy stuff Christ is talking about. It's only because our culture is a materialistic culture. It says there's nothing beyond what you can see. What you see is what you get. There's nothing else. Which is a completely untenable position, of course. As soon as you ask a question, then, like, why do people care about right and wrong? Why is there a sense of of morality? Why do people care about having meaning in life? I thought we were just big worms. And in our secular society, too, 
why are people so incurably religious? Our culture has its own temples and priests and tenets of the faith, even of secularism, doesn't it? Whether one worships the earth and environment, or a sports team, or money, or sexuality, or science, they all have their temples, they all have their priests, they all have their forms of worship. But see, Christ sets us before the real reality, which begins in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. That's the reality, that's the main reality in the universe, God. He made you, and you'll give an account to him. And so Christ says, in view of that fact, now calculate it. Look at this world. You're 80 years below, 90 years maybe. Look at the eternity. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And this is like a blip on the radar compared to this. This is a, a moment of time compared to this. So look at all the things you could have here below for those perhaps decades Look at all the pleasures of sin. Look at all the esteem of the world. Look at all the friends you can have. And then weigh it against the eternity of life with God and his fellowship and the joy of the Lord or under God's wrath. And decide what's better. The world is temporary. It's a fleeting world. This question by Jesus, though we know it well, J.C. Ryle says it ought to sound in our ears like a trumpet whenever we are tempted to neglect our eternal interests. For what profit is it to a man if he gain the whole world and loses his own soul? So we must each make the calculation. We must each personally make the calculation. You know, I've noticed that, that the profession of faith questions usually begin the, the same. And when young people are interviewed, the first question, you know, what brings you to this point? Why do you want to profess your faith? And it's a question asking one of motive, isn't it? Are you here willingly and joyfully to, to claim the Lord Jesus, to identify with him? Or have you been forced here by your father or by your pastor, in this case by your father pastor? Are you here of your your own accord? Because you can't fake it in the end, can you? You can't fake it in the end. The answer to the question will show itself in your heart and life, and if not before men, surely before God. The Lord doesn't make the choice for us. We must make it. And yet, Christ and his love here is encouraging us to make the right choice by setting before us the the truth of the matter, isn't he? And when we do make the right choice, we give him praise because it's his work in us. It's the power of the living Christ of whom Psalm 110 verse 3 speaks. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, or your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The question here it may seem like it's out of reach, right? Die to myself? Take up a cross? We can't even... Well, we can barely begin 
to grasp the horror of the word cross. The things that were done to men who were crucified are beyond description. Would I really do that? And yet it's Christ working by his free grace in us. First John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Those who are born of the, the Spirit of God, they alone have a living faith and are able to make the calculation and to do the math and to say, Christ's yoke is easy, his burden is light, though it costs my life. By the profession of faith form says, we thank our God concerning you for the grace of God given you that you are made desirous of professing your faith. We give praise to God that he brings you to, to sing, I'd rather have Jesus than riches or gold. Idosa, the young woman, voice of the martyr, speaks of, she, though she struggled, is Christ worth it? The article goes on to say that she's standing in a courtroom was able to say to the judge, I don't, I don't care about all the money she owes me. I have something greater. I have Jesus. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.3. Because you see, to say Jesus is Lord, to say he's my Lord, I will follow him. To make this calculation is to make a calculation of faith which comes from the Lord. And so the, the best university in the world has the best math department. You can enroll, but if they're unbelieving professors, they cannot lead you to make this calculation. It's the calculation of faith. Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. See, Moses had this inescapable dilemma, didn't he? I can have the palace of Egypt, or I can have the people of God in their hardship, but I can't have both. And by faith, he said, you know what? I would rather have the afflictions of God's people than to be the prince of Egypt. By faith, he made that choice, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. For he looked to the reward. Let's think of that finally this morning. Not just the cost, not just the calculation, but the crown. Verse 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So the day of reckoning is coming. Everyone's choice is going to be tested, right? Bill Gates, Elon Musk, President Biden will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ Jesus. And we will too. There's going to be a reward, Jesus says, according to his works. If you believe in salvation by grace, don't scratch those words out. You don't need to. You may not. 
doesn't mean that you're saved by your works. It says you're judged according to your works, and those are a world of part. Our works express what's in our heart. Our works are the expression of our heart, and they're the evidence of our faith. And so we're judged according to our works because our works, our words, our deeds, our thoughts, reveal whether or not we believe. That's why Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's why John Calvin once wrote, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith that justifies is not alone. That's why Jesus in Matthew 25 is going to separate sheep and goats based on what they did, whether they visited him in prison, whether they gave a cup of water. So we'll be judged according to our works, not because they in any way merit eternal life, but because they display whether or not we have faith. And who's going to be the judge here? Well, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father. This is the reward of our Lord Jesus. Right? So, so he who said to his disciples, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised, is showing us that, that the path of the cross is the way to the crown. And he's assuring us that our calculation will be vindicated, and we will receive the reward, and there's not the slightest possibility that those who are united to Christ are going to miss out on the reward, which is good news. Because a lot of our calculations, though we thought we did the math, they don't end up so well, right? We, we say, well, I'll just put the $2,000 into the car and keep it going for a couple years. And then the next repair is 4000 We think I should have sold it. I should have gotten a new car. Or, or we, we put the money into a business. We, we thought, well, we'll invest in the business and then we'll have profit. And then it doesn't go well. It didn't turn out like we thought. And could it be that, that there'd be somebody who give up their life, who renounce all of this world, and who suffer for Jesus, and in the end, it doesn't work out so well? And the answer is no. Because the Son of Man is coming in glory, and his resurrection, his ascension, prove it. Jesus says in verse 28, I tell you, there's some standing here who should not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Jesus is certainly not saying that some will live until he returns the second time. But I think he's saying there's some who will live to see me raised from the dead and seated in glory. Which is the guarantee of his return. And therefore the guarantee of the crown. Jesus says in Revelation 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Christ is going to crown us with everlasting life. It's good news, isn't it? It's good news for one who stood before us this morning to profess faith and to know. As I confess the name of Jesus before men, he will confess my name before the Father in heaven and before his angels. He will usher me into an eternity of the greatest joys and pleasures beyond my imagination, which shall never end. And if this morning we're only looking at ourselves and we'll go home depressed, if our eyes are stuck on our own abilities, we'll go home despairing. We are sinful. How can I follow Jesus? 
I'm short-sighted. How can I make the right calculation? I'm weak. How can I carry this cross to the end? But Matthew Henry has it exactly right. Suffering saints must look unto Jesus and take from him both direction and encouragement in suffering. Do we bear the cross? We therein follow Christ who bears it before us, bears it for us, and so bears it from us. He bore the heavy end of the cross, the end that had the curse upon it, and so made the other end light and easy for us. Remember again this morning that what we're called to here is not simply a Christian ethic or a Christian norm or a certain standard of life. We're called here to a person. The Son of God come in human flesh, having died for our sins and seated in glory and coming again. We're called to relationship with Jesus. And in him alone do we have the faith to make the right calculation, to count the cost, and to choose by his mercies to follow him. And Christ alone will receive the ultimate reward to be with our God and Father forever. Take heart, people of God. Renew your choice. Say, Lord Jesus, I will follow. Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We pray for the grace to follow our Lord and Master. Thank you for our great pioneer and for our great strength and help and for the great reward in store. Give us faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in